we're going to turn to God's Word. We're going to think about relationships this morning. When you think about the relationships in your life, what do you think is holding those relationships together? Think of your friends, your relatives, uh, your mother, father, your son, your daughter, your grandkids, your co-workers, anybody that's around you. I've been very interested in human relationships. In fact, in my doctoral studies, I, I, I explore that whole question in the context of making disciples. What role does this relationship play? And uh, in that line of thought, I, I've had the chance to reflect and to read and to explore a lot and research. There's a key component that holds any relationship together that allows for any relationship to even exist in the first place. And that key component is the component of trust. It's trust. One author, uh, Louis Smeads, uh, who has written a wonderful book on forgiveness, he says this, trust is the only bonding agent that holds a personal relationship together. In other words, Trust, as I'd call it, is the glue of human relationships. Truth is that uh, you don't sit at home and think about relationships all the time, right? Uh, we normally become aware of our relationships. We reflect on our relationships mostly when there is a problem, when the relationship is struggling, when there's something in a broken relationship. Then we start thinking about it. Most of the time when the relationship is on the rocks is you don't trust the other person anymore or not as much as before. But most of the time, there is a broken promise involved. There's a broken promise involved. Years ago, I, we had a, in our first house in uh, Socasty. I just love how the GPS pronounces it. Uh, my, my little guy has a lot of fun with it. It says Socasty. Sakasti. When I hear it, it just cuts me like somehow. Uh, but it's Sakasti. So our first house was right there in Sakasti. We lived there for a number of years. And we had a serious roof issue. To the point where it was, it was coming through the roof. And at the time, I didn't know much about construction and any of that. So I was all just stunned. What do we, what do we need to do? What's going on here? But it was coming. Then it was flowing through the walls, coming down the floor. It was bad. We are getting mold and all that. And so we were looking for help. And someone, a friend of a friend that we didn't know, came along, looked at it, determined that we needed a new roof. And so he promised to help us. And that was just about the last time I saw that person. <laughs> and so as you can imagine, my level of trust that, uh, towards that person uh, became very, very low, if there was anything at all, uh, because of a broken promise. I bet you if, if we got together uh, for a little gathering and just have some fun and we each one of us got up to tell some stories of broken promises, it might take us weeks or months to tell all stories because it's part of life. The truth is though that uh, you and I also have broken promises we have made to others at one point or another. 
Now, when we think about our relationship with God, I believe that we have the tendency to transfer our human mishaps in human relationships to our relationship with God. Here's what I mean. I think we tend to think the way we think about people and about ourselves to think about God as well. Sometimes we don't trust God enough. Sometimes we doubt about things God has said. You're not sure if God will keep his promises. I mean, we say we do, but then we struggle. We struggle with really believing it and living our lives according to that belief. Because it's very easy to say something, but it's a lot more difficult to live it out, to live according to what you say. And so this morning I want us to look at a text. Uh, it's a text that is uh, not only beautiful from a literary standpoint, but it's also a text that helps us clarify something fundamental about God's character. Something very distinctive about God. Something very specific about who God is and how God deals with his promises. If God can be trusted at all. About our role in seeing God's promises being fulfilled. And the story takes us this time to the Old Testament. I realized that uh, over the last few years, maybe we've looked a lot into New Testament stories and New Testament texts uh, at the expense of the Old Testament. I realized that maybe we haven't paid enough attention on the whole of Scripture as we've preached and uh, discussed and taught. And so I, I thought it would be a good shift for us to look into some Old Testament passages as well. If Mike were here, I'd say, this message is going to be from the Bible. He always asks me, what's the message going to be from? I said, it's going to be from the Bible. But it's going to be from the Old Testament. Claudia, you tell Mike, okay? The story takes us, uh, I'll kind of go back a little bit so we can get plugged into the story. Uh, but the story takes us at the time when Israel, uh, as a nation, they were slaves in Egypt. And God sent Moses to take them out of Egypt, out of that slavery, and to lead them into what became known as the Promised Land. And so they moved finally into the Promised Land, not without many hurdles. They got there, they started conquering, they conquered as much as they could, and they started settling. And God was their king. For generations, uh, they went without a human king. They just don't, didn't need one. But at one point, they thought, wow, we don't have a king. In fact, at that point, uh, they were really moving away from God and rejecting God for who God was as their king. And they asked the prophets at the time, said, we need a king. We need a human solution. We need someone that would lead our battles Someone that would be able to get us in alliances with other nations. And the prophet was very shocked at the, at the time. He knew very well that uh, Israel had a king. But God decided to give them what they wanted. 
And so, God allowed them to select King Saul. That was the first king, human king, of Israel. And then, after Saul came King David. And after King David came King Solomon. And after King Solomon, that whole kingdom split in two. They couldn't get quite along, those leaders. One wanted to be a king, another wanted to be a king. And then one group formed around one person, and that became one kingdom, and the other became another kingdom. And one was with the most of the tribes of Israel up there. So on the north, you remember that, north would become known as Israel. And then the south, where Jerusalem was, became known as Judah. And so each kingdom had their own king, started their own separate stories. Now, successions of kings started in the north and in the south. But in the north in particular, there was a very specific succession of kings who were evil. They were just not good. And so, one king after another, things were getting worse and worse until it got to a king by the name of Ahab. You may have read about him or heard about him, but that's his name. If you have a grandkid or something, you can name Ahab. That would be a nice name. I don't know. Maybe not very popular, especially when you learn about him. King Ahab. We're told that he was the culmination of evil. He's introduced very briefly in the story. We don't hear much about him in, in uh, too much detail at the beginning. Uh, but we're told that he married a pagan woman who was evil by the name of Jezebel. And then we're told that he was serving Baal, which was an imaginary uh, god. He worshipped him. He built an altar to him, worshipped Baal, and led the people of Israel away and away and away from God and all the way into idolatry. It's interesting because uh, the text tells us uh, very briefly but uh, significantly. He says, it says that he provoked God to anger with all that he did. God, ang God was so angry. And it was more than all the kings of Israel who were before King Ahab. So you can imagine the level of evil that he represented. And that's where we get plugged into the story. And 1 King, end of chapter 16, describes this brief introduction of King Ahab. And then we get into chapter 17. I'm going to read this morning uh, from 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. I encourage you to hold your Bible or use your phone app. This is going to be on the screen as well. This morning I'm going to read from the New Stephan's translation, okay? Sometimes I do those things from Greek or Hebrew to be exact with the text. There might be a few words in your Bible that are slightly different, so don't get too anxious about it. But here's what it says. Now Elijah the Tishbite of the settlers in Gilead said to Ahab, As Yahweh, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, there shall be these years neither dew 
nor rain except by my word. And the word of Yahweh came to him, saying, Go from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Kareth, which is east of the Jordan. And from the brook you shall drink, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of Yahweh. And he went and lived by the brook Kareth, which is east of the Jordan. And the ravens were bringing him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. But after some times the brook dried up, because there was no rain in the land. You see, this is the introduction to a series of events in which uh, the prophet Elijah and then his successor, the prophet Elisha, will be involved. But already here in the beginning, we get to learn about the way God deals when he commands something or when he promises something. Now, the first thing you notice in the text is how abruptly Elijah appears on the platform. We don't know who he is. We don't know anything about him. But we see how he comes to King Ahab bringing the word of the Lord. Of all the evil we're introduced to in previous chapters with those evil kings, with the, that succession of evil kings, Elijah appears here in complete contrast. He is a torchbearer. He's proclaiming the word of the Lord. He comes to King Ahab in all boldness and announces that there will be neither dew nor rain for years until he comes back and says anything different. You see, through Elijah, God announces his judgment that is coming. But God's judgment is never random. God never pronounces judgments just because he changed his mood or because just he got angry about something, just because he felt like it. That's how we humans sometimes get angry about things and are ready to make judgments about things. But that's not how God does it. God judges us and he withholds his favor from us when we live in disobedience to him. There are different reasons why you may, go, may be going through difficult times in your life. Sometimes God may be allowing certain circumstances to come to your life and you live through them so he can shape you, so he can challenge you, so he can transform you, so he can guide you in the right direction, so you can grow in your learning, in your trust to him. But sometimes also, God may be withholding his favor and his grace from you because of disobedience. Simply because you're not obedient to God's word. Because you're doing and saying and thinking things in your lives that are in contrast to what the Word of God tells you. In fact, if you look in the Old Testament earlier when God gave His law and then Moses was getting ready to get the people of Israel into the Promised Land, it says in Deuteronomy 
Take care, lest your heart be deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you. He will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain, and the land will yield no fruit, and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord is giving you. You see, God was judging the Israelites based on their disobedience. He wasn't randomly deciding to withdraw his favor from them. He basically announced to them what he much earlier said to them is going to happen if they're disobedient to him. So God's judgment is never random. God was acting rightfully according to his word. If the people moved away from him and started serving idols and some imaginary gods and pushed God away, didn't want to deal with God, when then God withdrew his favor from them. After the split of this whole kingdom under Saul and David and Solomon, God has watched the Israelites for a while. They were moving further and further away from him. For a few generations now, they've been doing evil. They were disobedient to his commands. But God was still patient with them. God gave them the opportunity for the sake of the doubt. Gave them another chance and another chance and another chance. Oh, he watched them worship idols. He watched them prostrate themselves before imaginary deities. He watched them sacrifice animals to some imaginary gods. God's heart was broken, observing his beloved children, his chosen people, disregard him, disregard his commands. God is patient. And sometimes he will delay his judgment. But God never fails to fulfill his promises. Some of you who've been around me know that uh, I'm fascinated by some of the cold cases and criminal investigation stories. And uh, I get to watch this on, on TV once in a while. It's fascinating, specifically when you look at some of the cold cases when uh, it was a crime committed 30, 40, even more years ago. And then uh, later on, based on forensic science and new, new ways of investigating and the case is reopened or something happened in circumstances and, uh, and they actually get to discover the person that committed that crime 30, 40, 50 years earlier. It's, it's just, I mean, I don't know for you, but that, for me, that's fascinating. And it's interesting to look at uh, an old man or an old woman being arrested and charged with murder or something like that 50 years later for something they committed when they were in their teen years or early 20s or something like that. You see, sometimes justice and judgment may be delayed, but it doesn't mean it's going to fail. And so it is with God. God is patient. He might give people an opportunity, another chance to turn around and come back. But ultimately, God is faithful to his promises. 
In fact, if you look at the story here, you will realize as we read it that when God promises something, it actually happens. We're told in verse 7 that uh, there was no rain in the land. You remember what Elijah announced the word of the Lord at the beginning. He said, there will be neither dew nor rain until I come back and tell you otherwise. And then verse 7 basically tells us there was no rain in the land. You see, in this text, it's interesting because God's promise and the fulfillment, His command and the fulfillment of that command are like, uh, like the two covers of a book. They enclose the inside of the story. They're like the, the, the two parts of the bun of a hamburger or a sandwich. And it's interesting also what happens in the middle. But God never fails to fulfill His words. So I want us to look now in the, in the middle of that uh, sandwich story where we find the prophet Elijah in his own dealings with God. It's almost like the text starts with the bigger story and then zooms in onto Elijah's own situation. Dealings in which... Uh, Elijah himself discovers the value of God's word and the faithfulness of God in fulfilling his promises. So what does God tell Elijah to do? He tells him to get up and to go east and to go hide by the brook Kareth. Some people pronounce it Cherith, but Kareth is in the Hebrew text. That's why I prefer uh, the Kareth uh, name. It makes no, no big difference. For those of you who sometimes doubt that uh, God can lead you, that God can show you the right direction, just look at how God leads and directs Elijah. God knows, and I'm sure Elijah knows at that point, that it's now very dangerous for him to stick around uh, King Ahab and just hang out and see what's going to happen. I mean, he's announced a major problem coming up. There won't be rain, no, no dew, no rain. Knowing the evil character of Ahab, the fact is that uh, with one word, he could have Elijah executed for his announcement. And so it's time to go. But God does not lead Elijah and doesn't direct him randomly. In fact, he promises him that wherever he goes by that brook, that there will be water that he will drink there. And then God says that he has commanded the ravens to feed him there. You see, when God leads you and when he directs you, he will also be with you with his presence and with his provision. God's not going to send you anywhere to do anything unless he is with you unless he provides for what he sends you to do. I know I've shared this story. I don't know how good your memory is, but uh, I love telling this story again and again because one of the most beautiful stories from my, from my own life, and that's from the time when I was starting seminary. It's one of my first trips to Charlotte, North Carolina. 
going there for Greek class and not having a plan for the night. It's Friday night. I have to spend the night somewhere. And uh, my immediate plan is take a, take a pillow and take a blanket, sleep in the back of the van. I was prepared to do that. I thought I'd just park behind the, the school and uh, just spend the night there in the van and then in the morning go to the restroom and wash my face and brush my teeth and get ready for classes. And I get in class. It's Greek class. Professor asks everybody to introduce ourselves. And so we all introduce ourselves. And there's this one person who says, I'm from North Myrtle Beach. And I'm thinking, wow, that's pretty intriguing. And so we get to talk during the break. And for some very strange reason to me, that person asks me, so what's your plan for tonight? And I say, good question. Because I don't quite have a plan. And, uh, and he says, well, uh, let's, let's get together after class. I have a room for you. And at that point, the professor calls us to get back to our seats and start class. And he says, okay, we'll talk later. And, and I'm through that second part of the class, I'm thinking, what does that mean, I have a room for you? And so after that, we get together. And he says, okay, get your stuff. Let's get going. I said, okay. Takes me to Cracker Barrel, have a great dinner. I'm home-style cooking. Can I beat that? And then takes me to a hotel. Makes all the arrangements. I've never been to a hotel before at that point. Makes all the arrangements, get that uh, card key or whatever. Takes me to the room, opens the door, and says, that's your room. See you in the morning. I said, where are you going? Oh, I have a place to stay. That's for you. I'm thinking, wow. I started on a trip from Myrtle Beach. I had no plan. I couldn't really plan. I ended up with a wonderful dinner, great time of fellowship. And then a hotel room, all for myself, all for me there. And I sat there that evening. It was probably 11, almost midnight, I guess, and thought, Lord, how did this happen? I had no clue. But you see, God is going to send you. He's going to be with you. He's going to provide for you. For me, that started a great relationship with Pastor George. A relationship that brought me to renovation as well. So that's part of the story. But you see, when you trust and obey God, you will see God keeping His promises to you. And so now it's Elijah's turn to act. What will he do? Will he take God's word seriously? Here, friends, the Hebrew text is, is really insightful. It's illuminating. This may not be very obvious to us as we read it in, in, in English, as English readers. Because in English and in other languages, we have different ways to express literary thought. The way we write poetry or narrative or other uh, kinds, uh, genres of, of literature is just different from language to language. But the Jewish writer was very deliberate 
in how he arranges the story and the details of the events. I already mentioned to you how the pronouncement about the drought and its fulfillment is like bookending the story within. So that's one way for the author to lead us into the middle of the story. But there in the middle, we also have a list of commands to Elijah. And those commands will be fulfilled in the second part of the story. But the key to understanding the focus of the whole story is right in the middle. It's right in the middle. What stands in the middle draws, draws more, the, the most attention. That's where the emphasis is. That's where the focus is. The central piece is what the author wants to emphasize. He wants this to stand out. And here's what he says in verse 5. It says, So he, meaning Elijah, so he went and did according to the word of Yahweh. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. That is the central piece, the centerpiece of that whole story for a reason. You know, sometimes God challenges us to come out of our comfort zone in trusting Him. Elijah is faced with a big dilemma. Well, first of all, he's supposed to go to that brook and say, okay, well, you go. There's a brook there. He'll drink water there. What about those ravens. You see, ravens were unclean animals. In the Old Testament, God commanded the Israelites to deal with certain animals and not to deal with other animals. So some were declared clean and others were declared unclean. Now, from my, understand, my understanding is that there was no specific uh, reason in terms of physical characteristics of the animal itself that it would be declared clean or unclean. So it wasn't because an animal is somehow unclean or clean that God said this will be clean or unclean. It was more that God was defining certain realities for the Israelites as his people that would make them different, that would make them distinct from anybody else around them. And that's why God determined that certain animals will be okay to eat and certain animals won't be okay. What about ravens? Well, ravens were not specifically clean in that regard. And so it's true that here God is not asking Elijah to eat ravens, but you have to understand that even association with anything that God declared unclean was already unthinkable at the time. It would have been a challenge to Elijah to even think that he'd be close to those ravens. But the text tells us, remember, that's the centerpiece. It tells us that he went and did according to the word of Yahweh according to the word of the Lord. And so Elijah obeys according to God's word. He trusts that if God says something, 
He will do it. No matter how unusual or even strange the circumstances may be. He knows that he can trust God because God always keeps his promises. When you trust and obey God, you will see God keeping his promises to you. And you see, Elijah not only trusts and obeys God when he's facing with unusual commands from the Lord. He also trusts and obeys God when God's command stands against human logic and all human rationality. Have you ever seen birds feeding people? Let me ask you. Have you? I don't see hands raised or anything. I haven't seen birds feeding animals. Let's face it. Rationally, this is not something you would see in your life. This is not something you would observe because it's normal. You actually never see this. In fact, if you look at this story, you would realize that this is the only story of birds feeding people in the whole Bible, which I find significant. Not only birds don't usually feed people, but hear a little, hear a little bit more about ravens. Uh, scholars tell us that there were different kinds of ravens uh, known in Israel. But what's the common thing among them? They're known for their scavenger nature. They're scavengers. So you just cannot expect a raven to bring you food, you see. Ravens, to put it in resort terms and vacation terms, Ravens just don't do for good waiters and waitresses. Anybody from New Jersey? Okay, New Jersey people. Do you know Wildwood? Okay, I've been to Wildwood. It's like years ago. I got to tell you, it's a fascinating situation. Because you'd walk on that boardwalk. Friends, every day I, I was there, you would see people walking with their ice cream or funnel cake. I love funnel cake. New Jersey people, if you know how to make that, give me a call. But they'd be walking on the boardwalk with that ice cream or funnel cake, and you'd see how those seagulls would just come down and just grab it from their hands. And everybody's surprised, as if it never happened before. I was surprised the first time. And then I just sat and enjoyed the show because you'd see it every day. You see, birds and ravens in particular won't be the animals you would expect to bring you food. They'll take it from you, not bring it to you. Except that the text here tells us, God says to Elijah, I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. I have commanded them to do it. You see, with God's command, everything is possible. And when you trust and obey God, you will see God keeping His promises to you. There was a tourist who was walking one time around the Dead Sea, lost his balance, fell into the water. Some of you have visited there, I know that. You've done probably a similar thing. I hope you didn't fall in the water. But the guy started, you know, doing all kinds of crazy moves, 
saving himself, supposedly. Until he was exhausted. He couldn't do it anymore. That would be a little bit like me. And then he was stunned by what happened. Because he realized that the water bore him up. As you may know, the, the water of the Dead Sea is so full of, uh, so rich, heavy with salt and minerals and whatever that's in the water, that when you lay on the water, it holds you. You can float on the surface as long as you rest on the water. The guy couldn't drown as long as he resigned himself to the power of the water. As long as he trusted that something's going to hold him. Elijah entrusted himself to God and obeyed God's commands, even though the circumstances of what God was commanding him to do were quite bizarre. But when you trust and obey God, you will see God keeping His promises to you. The text tells us that Elijah went and stayed by the brook Kareth. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. I think the author is very intentional here, the way he phrase, he's phrasing the story. He's emphasizing God's abundant provision. Bread and meat in the morning, bread and meat in the evening. He wants us to understand that Elijah is going through an experience with divine intervention. He does everything according to the word of the Lord. When you trust and obey God, you will see God keeping His promises to you. You see, the author arranges the story very carefully. Elijah is told that he will drink water from the brook. And then he goes and he drinks water from the brook. He's told that God commanded the ravens to feed him. And we read about raven, ravens feeding him, bringing food to him. It's like a mirror view of what God says and what happens and what God does. But remember, in the middle stands... Elijah's obedience to God's word. He went and did according to the word of the Lord. When you trust and obey God, you will see God keeping His promises to you. D.L. Moody said, Trust in yourself and you are doomed to disappointment. Trust in your friends, and they will die and leave you. Trust in money, and you may have it taken from you. Trust in reputation, and some slanderous tongue may blast it. But trust in God, and you are never to be confounded in time or eternity. Amen. Even as we come to this table now, table of communion, it is this trusting God that we have. Trust in what God has done for us. God loves you so much. He loved the whole world so much 
He didn't want to leave separated from Him because of our sin. He did not want for us to receive the right punishment that we deserve for our sin. To spend eternity separated from Him. But He loved this world so much that He gave His only Son, Jesus Christ, to come and live and minister and serve people and to die on the cross. He, he took on that cross the punishment that you and I deserved. If it weren't for Jesus, you and I would have been on that cross. But he took our punishments on himself so we could be forgiven. So you can be restored to the right relationship with God. So you can spend eternity in God's presence. But friends, I want us to think this morning as we come to the table that eternity doesn't start one day. Sometimes when we think about eternity, we think, yeah, that's when I die one day, that's kind of the, some far future. Friends, we're part of eternity. For God, there is no time. In His existence, there is no past, present, or future. So we're part of eternity. Eternity is today. If you've committed your life to Christ, if you've asked Jesus to come into your life and you've asked God to forgive your sins and you've been restored to the right relationship with God, you're already in God's presence for eternity. God says that uh, He gives us the gift of eternal life. Eternal life is today. He said to the Pharisees, the kingdom is among you. God's kingdom is already here. If you've never turned to God and asked God to forgive your sins, if you've never trusted in Jesus for your future and for what comes ahead, this might be the day. God is patient. He loves us so much. He gives us an opportunity after opportunity, after opportunity. And He invites all of us. He invites you today. If you have questions about anything, I'd be more than glad to talk with you after the service. I'll be hanging out around here. Come and talk to me.